Oh, a fellow podcaster, actually. Um, this actually might be might be not real email. This might be a might, might be a scam email. <laughs> so, so that is has it a, invited us to submit our podcast, the Journal of Archaeology podcasts. <laughs> it's something called Podmatch, which sounds a little bit more. Um, it's a Star Wars like, dating app, isn't it? I was, was going to say this sounds more like Tinder than it does uh, 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 podcasting. Brunswick Archaeology Podcast, featuring hosts Gabe Reinick and Ken Holyoke. Welcome back to the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. I'm Gabe Reinick here in Fredericton, New Brunswick, and I'm talking to Ken Holyoke, who is in Lethbridge, Alberta, recently back from Portland. And it's the other Portland. It's not the one that many of our Northeast listeners immediately think about. It's the one in Portland, Oregon. How are you, Ken? Not too bad. Uh, yeah. it, a, lo- a lovely weekend. And, and yes, the other Portland. This was... Uh, topic of conversation with all of our Northeast colleagues. So what were you doing in the other Portland? I was at the Society for American Archaeology annual meeting. Fantastic. So the listener, we, we apologize. Uh, Ken and I were both uh, gigging over the weekend. So Ken at the, uh, at the SAA meeting in Portland, and I was at the New Hampshire Archaeological Society meeting in, surprisingly enough, New Hampshire. So w- this is coming to you a little bit later than a fortnight from the last one. And it's going to be a special episode where we're going to talk about the Society for American Archaeology meeting, and you're going to hear from some of our friends and colleagues who were there. Um, but first, we're sponsored, as always, by the Association of Professional Archaeologists of New Brunswick. And you can find out more about them at apanb.ca. Do we have an active, do we have a live website again? That's a great question. And, um, and uh, Trevor Dow, if you're listening, you call in and let us know, okay? This is it. <laughs> Let us know if uh, if we've settled our bill on the APA and V.ca. Uh, there's no active website at this address at this, t- at this okay. time. So, so we're, we're, we're working on some tech issues uh, yeah. in the APA and V. But um, spiritually, uh, the APA and V is yeah. is traveling, traveling the airwaves. Um, and uh, but speaking of uh, of good news, we if you have been thinking about a name for this podcast right now. It's the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. And you've thought to yourself, oh boy, I hope it really wasn't, uh, I hope no one's named it yet because I have got the perfect name for it. You could still claim your prize. So Ken, if someone has a name for the podcast, where would they email it? They're going to email newbrunswickarchaeology at uh, gmail.com. Fantastic. And if you are the listener this fortnight to suggest the new, the new winning name, for the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast, you will receive, I hope you're ready for this excitement, a 10-inch, 33 and a third RPM vinyl record. And that's going to contain 18 minutes of the greatest hits of the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. Um, we have these pressed directly from our original master recordings, so that means it goes directly from the taped master, directly onto the lathe, directly onto sustainable vinyl. And we're going to have that available. What, what, what is sustainable vinyl? I'm not sure, Ken, but I saw online that that the vinyl record industry has got serious environmental problems, and this helps to address that. And uh, these masters, uh, incidentally, are stored in a secure off-site climate-controlled facility to avoid a sort of universal music fire situation. Mm -hmm. Um, But but not only will you get this limited edition vinyl EP, you will get the complete Portland experience. Ken and I are going to send you one pound. That's over 450 grams 
of single origin Colombian coffee, gently roasted to reveal notes of guava, roasted almond and pear. And you can enjoy that while you listen to this EP on your home hi-fi system. So Ken, again, where would they email in their winning entry? Uh, New Brunswick Archaeology at gmail.com. Fantastic. And I understand that we had some user email. This we do morning. have user emails. Yes. Uh, our, our frequent um, uh, uh, fan email from David Black just uh, saying that he enjoyed the uh, publication uh, episode with Bill Farley, um, which right. should be up on uh, Bill's uh, YouTube uh, channel anytime here soon. Uh, we got an email, um, a friendly email from Vermont uh, and uh, just interested in the show and uh, that they have enjoyed the banter and um, didn't have a, a suggestion for the um, for the title, but uh, you have at least one listener among your multitudes coming to and enjoying your material from the edges of the discipline. So, uh, so that's a Lovely. listener from a listener from uh, um, from Vermont who is not an archaeologist himself, but his partner works for the U.S. Forest Service in archaeology, and. And then another emailer uh, who, oh, a fellow podcaster, actually. Um, this actually might be, might be not real email. This might be a, might, might be a scam email. <laughs> so, so that is. Has it the, invited us to submit our podcast, the Journal of Archaeology podcasts? <laughs> it's something called Podmatch, which sounds a little bit more, um, it's a Star Wars like, dating app, isn't it? I was, was going to say this sounds more like Tinder than it does uh, 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 podcasting, but huh. uh, but uh, in addition to user mail, we are also being, as far as I understand, distributed through the TSA uh, podcast network. Uh, after uh, after I had a, a enthusiastic, um, is it Transport and Security Agency? Uh, Transportation Security Administration, I administration, think, but I could be wrong. Um, yeah. Uh, officer they're like mall cops for the airport right yeah the, well uh they're keeping your country safe uh, uh america yeah. safe uh, gabe but yes. uh, they're um, keeping your country safe too ken that's that's true yeah <laughs> that's uh, why they scan your retinas <laughs> and other things and my body scan um <laughs> and uh yeah we had a we had a tsa agent who was thrilled that i was a podcaster um uh and uh received a sticker um, and said he was going to share it with uh, with his colleagues. That's fantastic. So, um, yeah, shout out to the to the TSA in uh, was it the Portland Airport? Portland Airport. Yeah, fantastic. Well, um, looking forward to uh, to expanding our our network with the, with yeah. the TSA. Yeah. So we might have a small hub of listeners in the in the north northwest coast. That's fantastic. Um, so Ken, how was the how was the conference? It was great. Um, I, I arrived a little bit late, um, as uh, as our various hits uh, uh, later on in the episode will attribute to. Uh, day day two of the conference was day one of the conference for Ken, um, and uh, a little bit of a flight delay, freezing fog in Calgary actually. Whoa! Yeah, which is a, a uniquely Southern Alberta thing, I think actually. I thought um, she was someone that uh, Donald Trump paid hush money to, but. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, the uh, great conference, uh, great location. Um, uh, actually, uh, kind of a just a good facility for the conference. The rooms were all very close together. Um, seemed very well attended. Uh, although I had a gentleman tell me that he he didn't think it was well attended. So I guess we'll wait to see the numbers from the SAA. Um, 
but some uh, fascinating papers, really great exhibit hall, um, the far northeast 3000 BP to contact on display in that exhibit hall uh, with the Mercury series represented for the first time. And uh, and lots of lots of swag and and lots of uh, catching up with colleagues and that sort of thing. So that's great. And so um, what session were you in? You you give a paper. We were in uh, the title eludes me right now, but uh, compositional analytical archaeology two. Uh, it was the the sequel. Because one just wasn't enough. One just was not enough. Well, uh, Ken, that sounds riveting. Uh, what were you presenting on? What was the, what was what was your paper about? Uh, so our paper was uh, kind of elaborating on some of this uh, sourcing work that we've been doing with uh, Carboniferous Churts in southern New Brunswick. Uh, so uh, Brandon Rizzuto, uh, who's a graduate student at the University of Toronto, um, a bit of a handheld XRF guru, um, has uh, he and I have been working on uh, applying handheld XRF as potentially a, a tool to use for distinguishing um, Carboniferous Cherts from one another and whether or not we can tell the difference between Carboniferous Cherts in New Brunswick and Mesozoic Cherts in Nova Scotia, which kind of answers important sourcing questions about where Indigenous groups were getting, acquiring their stone. Um, and in this particular paper, uh, we were sort of elaborating on this project because um, one of the challenges is uh, Chert is a uh, heterogeneous material. And so the geochemical signature of Chert is actually very hard to pin down because there are so many different um, elements and minerals that come that make it up. And so um, handheld XRF is actually not a great instrument for distinguishing heterogeneous materials. Sorry, can I interrupt you just, just for a second? Because I, we, we may have lost the, the listener, just like we've lost me at this point. Um, <laughs> what, what is XRF? What is an XRF? What does it do? Uh, so uh, an XRF, so handheld XRF, so X-ray fluorescence is, the, is what XRF stands for. Um, and essentially, it is a device that bombards a sample with X-rays, um, just the same ones that will scan, you know, produce, look, look at your bones and that kind of thing. Uh, and what it does is it shoots an X-ray at a, a sample, and that sample actually deflects um, beams back to the device, and the device has a small computer in it that picks up um, distinguishing um uh electrical signals from different elements that would be in the sample and so uh basically you know if you shoot at a rock the device will pick up that the rock is made up of chert for example made up of mostly silica um and then a bunch of other smaller uh, elements and smaller concentrations and uh uh handheld xrf looks it looks like a star wars phaser or a star trek phaser sorry um my understanding is that's purposeful uh that, that was part of the design because it encourages uh, you to wear a lead shirt while you do this yeah <laughs> and go yeah. Pew, pew, yeah, uh, yeah as you're as you're uh, doing your science um but there and, and it's not it it actually is um it's not as simple as point and shoot there's actually like a quite a bit of statistical analysis that has to go on with uh this device um because it doesn't so what it unlike some other techniques that will produce um you know a percentage like your your sample is made up of 98% silica and 6% this and this and this. Um, handheld XRF only tells you uh, how many photon beams have bounced off. So it's it's uh, it's it's imprecise. And so, but it's a great way to kind of uh, do some preliminary work on distinguishing different materials or identifying different materials. So they use it in the art history world, for example, 
uh, to detect whether or not there are forgeries because there are certain um, uh, paints and uh, uh, elements within like traditional paints, like authentic paints that would not uh, be in in forgeries. So and forgeries will come back with different elements that uh, would uh, would allow you know uh, an art historian to say like that's not this was not painted in the 16th century. This was this was painted last year kind of thing. So and and then when you were describing your paper, you alluded to the problem with heterogeneous versus homogeneous um, materials. The problem in the Northeast is basically that the materials you're looking at have a lot of variability. So if you're looking at one rock face, there could be a lot of difference across even a couple of meters of that rock face. Yeah. So so Washington Church geologically is is very diverse. So it comes in reds and yellows and purples and grays and and blacks. And so um, it's got all of these different colors and all of those colors are actually um, comprised of different elements and different minerals. Um, and so when you're looking at a material like that, depending on if you have a blue gray piece or a red piece, um, the, the geochemical signature for that rock might be a little bit different. Um, and so in this project, we decided to focus exclusively on the red variant of Washtomoic chert and the red variant of these various Carboniferous cherts. And so the Carboniferous is a geological uh, epoch and uh, our, our geological age, and, and the Mesozoic is a geological age. And these are just the time frames, um, the hundreds of millions of years in the past when these particular rocks were formed. Um, and uh, how are cherts so, formed? What's what's the sort of so chert, broad picture? Chert is a is a essentially a sedimentary rock, um, and so uh, they a classic chert will form in um, a limestone bed. So um, uh, in in the context of the wash, and sometimes these could be so limestone is a very porous rock, um, and as a result, uh, when uh, limestone forms uh, in in a lake, so, uh, so limestone is generally associated with lakes, for example, and so a chert will form when um, essentially lake water, <laughs> uh, silica in a, in a, the mineral silica kind of condenses into limestone, um, fills in the, the gaps in this limestone and solidifies into a rock uh, over a very long period of time. So it's essentially a silica slurry that becomes a, a hard rock that looks almost gemstone quality. So you and, and uh, Brenner Zitto, you shoot Basically, an XRF, you shoot it at a potential lithic source, and then you shoot it at the artifact, and you try to match those two fingerprints, basically. Yeah, so we haven't gotten to the artifact analysis yet. And so this was all basically trying to characterize the geological signature of these rocks. Um, and so this has been a kind of an ongoing project where we've elaborated on these results over time, because what we discovered was that the handheld XRF device gave us interesting results that appeared to show us that there are ways to distinguish these rocks using geochemical techniques. And so what we did is we used a couple of other techniques. Um, so scanning electron microscopy, which is a very high precision microscope that can detect geochemical signatures and also gives you these really interesting pictures of the surface of the rocks that you're looking at. Um, and uh, one of the things that we discovered was that chert from the lake uh, appears to have some uranium in it. And chert from the hill in Henderson Settlement appears to have more strontium in it. And so the listener can't see this, but Ken actually has been glowing green since the third episode of this of this pod as he's been spending more time in the lab. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he doesn't need a light to read at night anymore. Yeah. And uh, uh, so the discovery of like these potentially what we would call characteristic elements. So these are potentially elements that when you see them in maybe an, uh, an artifact uh, could tell you whether or not this chert is coming from the lake 
or if it's coming from the hill kind of thing. And so uh, the SEM, we took some images, we actually detected, um, confirmed that there was uranium in these samples, um, confirmed that what appears to be possibly microfossils, um, so the remnants of fossils in there, which again would give you, that that would could be fairly characteristic of a particular um, source. And so we'll have to have geologists take a look at these things. And I have some thin sections, which are very small, cuts of, of rock that uh, that can kind of allow you to characterize the, the the rock itself a little bit better. Um, and so that's gave... destructive. Oh, sorry. Does XRF, you mentioned thin sections, which obviously would involve cutting a rock. Cutting a rock. Can you yes. XRF without doing that? So handheld XRF can be non-destructive um, because you don't need to, um, uh, you just need a very flat surface. So technically you can analyze something using handheld XRF without, um, uh, without altering the, the sample. Uh, in this case, the what we were doing was we needed to figure out whether this worked at all. So we were using geological samples that were polished uh, and prepared professionally, either by you know myself and Brandon, or by we had a lab that we used that prepared a bunch of samples for us. So basically, the way that you have to work with these things is that you go from uh, really rigorous lab-controlled analysis to see if it works, and then if it does, then you can try it on. Um, like non-prepared samples, like an artifact or or even an experimentally um, prepared sample. For, so like if I break a flint nap or break off a piece of rock uh, and try try to see if whether we can reproduce those same results that we got um, using using uh, prepared samples. So what kind of training is involved in using one of these instruments? So actually, uh, it is in Canada, you need to have uh, Natural Resources Canada issues you a non-destructive radioactive, um, non-destructive radioactive analysis permit. Um, and so I actually am in the process of renewing my X-ray fluorescence analyzer operator certific certification. Uh, and I get, you get a, uh, an ID card with your, uh, like an official government of Canada um, uh, certification and uh, because these are uh, radioactive devices uh, and so a level one operator can operate an XRF um, and a level two operator uh, can uh, transport a device and um, and teach other people how to use the device uh, and, and actually to so Brandon is a level two operator um, and has permits that he has to carry with him anytime he flies or travels with the device and 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 actually, if you have one of these in your possession and you don't have any um, certified uh, uh, NRCAN radio, like if if you if you don't have any operators, uh, the, the Natural Resources Canada can actually legally seize that device from you because you are not legally allowed to possess a, a radioactive device without certification. Oh wow! So so it's a, a safety thing basically. Is that it's these, a safety these thing. Yeah. Could be could be dangerous to yeah. you or somebody around yeah. you. If and, you don't know and, what you're doing. And 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 just so the listener knows, I I am I'm not I am lightly irradiating myself when I operate these things. Uh, but Brandon, who runs it all the time, actually is heavily um, irradiating himself. <laughs> so so he actually uh, he has um, a dosimeter um, because he runs it so often. He actually has a dosimeter that uh, that um, he has on him all the time whenever he's operating it. Uh, because he needs to, uh, because he uses the device so often, he needs to like actually be be conscious of that. The, the, it is very low amount of radiation, but you're actually there's there's a way that you're supposed to sit when you operate the device. You have to sit on one side of it uh, because the radiation is higher on one side than the other. Because radiation's right-handed. 
Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It only it only blows left. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. The, yeah. So the <laughs> so so to take this back, um, al alongside the handheld XRF, uh, we did some more precise techniques. So we did the scanning electron microscopy, which picked up confirmed that the uranium was in the pieces that we thought it was, um, which is which is fascinating. And then so there's another technique that you can use to get. Um, what we call quanti uh, uh, quantitative results. And so this is like where you find out the exact percentages of, of the rock. And, and that process basically involves um, sending samples to a lab uh, to conduct what is called neutron activation analysis. And in that process, they take the whole rock as opposed to just one little spot that we shoot a laser at. They take the whole rock, they crush it up into a powder, um, and then they bombard it with a different kind of radiation um, and all of that analysis is done at um, what's sort of considered to be the marquee lab for that in North America at the uh, University of Missouri um, Research Reactor Archaeometry Laboratory, or shorthanded MUR, M-U-R-R. Um, and, uh, and so they did neutron activation analysis on a number of those samples. And, and again, what was, uh, what was great is that the neutron activation data came back and um, the sort of groups distinguishing groups of elements that we were seeing in handheld XRF, which is a very low precision analysis analytical device. And the stuff that we saw in SEM was reproduced in the neutron activation data. And so that told us a couple things. And the first was that number one, um, there is a possibility of distinguishing these two carboniferous chert sources from one another using geochemical techniques, but that not all samples are distinguishable. There are, there's groups within um, these two types of rocks that can be distinguished from one another. And number two, we were able to demonstrate that handheld XRF, despite being a low um, a low precision um, analytical device, is actually, um, if done properly uh, and, and sort of like rigorously and with following sort of uh, analytical procedures. So this is Brandon's wheelhouse. This is, he's kind of, he knows how to kind of set up the controls and everything like that. Um, uh, you're, you can potentially produce results to source what, what are conventionally considered to be incredibly difficult materials to distinguish from one another using that type of device. And so um, uh, kind of a really interesting result. Yeah. And so we had a conversation with um, uh, Brandy McDonald, who was uh, um, actually really excited about these results um, and uh, said that, you know, that, that it's kind of uh, interesting to be able to see neutron activation and, and uh, XRF data. Um, sort of uh, pairing up. And, and actually, Brandon uh, is doing an internship with, uh, paid internship with Murr this summer. Um, and, and part of the reason they've recruited him is because of his, uh, uh, his expertise working with uh, handheld XRF. That's excellent. Congratulations, Brandon. Yeah. Um, so, and this is all super useful because we use knowing about where, where particular rocks were from to proxy how people are moving around the landscape or how they're exchanging particular items from places and you're interested in getting at people's relationships to places over a long period of time. Exactly. And, and so, so the, the archeological, the interesting part of this, so the archeology span that's, uh, that's uh, um, behind this is that, um, you know, we find archeological washed emote chert. Um, so what we, this carboniferous chert generally, we've always called washed emote chert because we've always assumed that it's coming from uh, washed emote lake where the material uh, has a large outcrop, but, what I've discovered in my research is that there are other potential locations where carboniferous cherts that look a lot like what we would call washed emote chert occur and, and were used by indigenous groups. So there's a secondary um, location uh, at a place called Henderson Settlement 
um, where we found uh, indigenous artifacts and and chert. Um, and uh, and while uh, this might suggest that there's two different places people can go, um, what's interesting is that when you look at it, you know, from sort of a, a Cartesian sort of top down mapping approach, these are two different locations, right? Um, but uh, but if we think about it archaeologically, um, Wabanaki may not have been thinking about places the same way we do. And so, you know, a place to get red shirt on a hill versus a place to get red shirt on a lake, maybe different uh, geographic places, but may have been thought of in, in much the same way. Um, and uh, and so people may have structured the way that they moved around the landscape and, and uh, you know, in, in seasonal movements or, or, you know, when they were traveling up and down rivers or portaging uh, uh, in areas uh, and collecting, collecting stone, um, they may have thought of them actually as, as very similar places, if not the same. That's great. Um, so uh, it sounds like a good paper. Looking forward to, uh, I'm, I'm sure you're looking forward to seeing it in your dissertation and then the rest of us are looking forward to seeing you publish so, it. Yeah, so this actually won't make the cut for the dissertation. This will be oh. a, a paper four of three. Um, and okay. uh, so it'll come out probably sometime. Uh, Brandon and I are hoping to have it out by the end of the year in publication. Um, but, uh, but it'll be sort of supplementary to the uh, to the thesis. Yeah. Great. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing that. That's that's uh, super interesting work. And you know, teasing out all these red shirts. Um, I don't really believe in lithic sourcing. I don't think it's true. But I appreciate being able to at least seem sophisticated in my in my throwing my hands up. Yeah. Uh, Nathaniel Kitchell and I had a great conversation. Uh, Nathaniel, who is who was at a postdoc at Dartmouth and has a new position actually. That's at, right. At Salve. Right. Salve. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And uh, Salve Regina in Newport, Rhode Island. Yeah. Um, yep. And uh, uh, he and I had a great discussion about red shirts, as as we usually do. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the uh, the the savvy, um, you know, I know it's been NCAA March Madness time, and and you may have just heard red shirt, which means something entirely different in uh, in in the collegiate athletics world. Um, that's not what Ken meant. Um, so uh, <laughs> so Ken the. Um, you're at the SAA meeting. Some of our listeners may not have been to one of these gigantic conferences before. And so sort of on the one end, so we'll maybe compare and contrast this. This weekend, I was at the New Hampshire Archaeological Society meeting. It's one day, three or four talks. They, you know, invite, you know, three or four archaeologists in to give presentations about their research. That's very different than the SAA meeting. Yep. Outline and outline going to an SAA meeting and presenting at an SAA meeting starting, you know, maybe it's going to be, you're going to start 10 months in advance. Tell us about how the process works. Yeah. So, so the SAA is, is the largest um, meeting for archeologists in North America. Um, I don't know if it would be the largest archeologists meeting, although apparently WAC, it's, be, it's bigger than WAC, um, which is the world archeology span Congress meeting. It's just WAC goes to more exotic locations, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, so the SAA, um, you you actually propose your paper, so your abstract. So when we talked about talked to Bill about an abstract, uh, you do the same thing for a conference paper. Um, the SAA requires that you have that abstract, so you know what you're going to be presenting on. Usually, I think it's in the cutoff is September of the year before uh, the conference. So next year's conference is in New Orleans, uh, and uh, by September 2023, you will have submitted a paper committing to attending a conference in New Orleans in April 2024, um, which uh, is, you know, uh, uh, you know, eight, eight to nine months before um, 
uh, before you're going to be presenting on that work. And so it does, I, I, you can, you can st strategically write an abstract anticipating work being done, <laughs> but in, but in many cases you, with the essay, you have to have uh, been committed to doing work um, that, uh, uh, you know, is, is probably ready to go to write on um, because of that kind of commitment uh, timeframe. Uh, You're often preparing that for something called a session. A session, yeah. And so in some cases you might be uh, in an invited session. And so this may be uh, a colleague or somebody who works in the same area that you work in or the same kind of doing the same kind of analytical work that you do in invites you to participate in it. And so you present a paper in their session. Um, uh, in this case, we were uh, we we didn't know of any sessions that our particular paper fit in with. Um, and so there was somebody who was chairing a session on compositional analysis, which is basically just using lasers to study things. Uh, and we were sorted by the the conference committee into that um, into that particular session. And so in our session, there were eight papers, um, all uh, sort of the uniting theme being compositional analysis. And so many of them actually uh, were, were almost exclusively about using neutron activation analysis uh, from Mer <laughs> to uh, to analyze. So Mer, Mer had a was was advertised quite heavily during that session. So uh, they they probably could have sponsored it pretty easily. Um, and that was sort of the uniting theme. And so there was a paper from the Caribbean. There was a paper on um, Incan um, stomach contents, uh, Incan mummy stomach contents. Um, a paper from the Pacific Northwest, uh, and. Uh, a couple just from sort of uh, uh, central United States, basically, and then our paper. And so these these uh, an SAA paper it rewards brevity. So you've got a how long how long is an SAA talk supposed to be? So an SAA paper is fifteen minutes, um, and they run a pretty tight ship at the SAA. So if you're a session chair at the SAA, you need to keep your time pretty sharp because, um, as we'll talk about in just a moment, there are a lot of uh, consecutive sessions going on. And so people are kind of bouncing around from different rooms um, uh, all day long. And if you, and all the papers are synchronized to these 15 minute segments. And, and so if you want to watch a paper at 10 a.m. to 10.15, and then you want to watch a different paper in a different session at 10.15, if the first paper at 10 doesn't end at 10.15, you don't get to see the other paper. And so it's, it's more of a um, it's it's a courtesy thing, a kind of professional courtesy thing, but it's also it means that the way you structure your paper is actually very uh, it, it's very bang bang bang. And so you probably, if you think about it, if you're if you're considering preparing a paper for the SAA, the way you want to kind of visualize it as an outline is you're probably going to have a five minute kind of introductory section. You're probably going to have a five minute sort of data presentation segment, and then you're going to have a five minute interpretation and conclusion section. And um, for those of you who are um, who has never done a presentation like that before. Um, I think what you'll find is that if you write out your remarks, you're talking about reading between, you know, 1800 to 2500 words at most, um, which is is brevity, as, as Gabe said. So you, you got to be really quick with it. And, and, and like I said, you know, you want to be respectful of that time period and not kind of run over um, because other people are participating in the session and other sessions as well. Absolutely. So, okay, so there, um, you, you go to the SAA, you give your 15-minute talk, um, and just to give the listener kind of a sense of the scale of an SAA meeting, so, and I, I should have looked this up, but I'm so speaking off the cuff here, my recollection is that last year was sort of the, you know, the immediate kind of, not really post-COVID, but post-COVID downturn, 
um, conference. I think there were about 3,000 or so people there, down from what I think a big SAA meeting is something like 6,000 people. Sticks in my sticks in my mind. Yeah. So like, and I I don't know the numbers yet. So usually they email out. Uh, kind of a summary of the conference. I haven't seen that come in yet with the total number of people in attendance. Um, but yeah, but you're talking thousands of people, um, hundreds of papers, uh, you know, multiple poster sessions. So people, you you may be presenting a po- an oral presentation, or you might also be preparing a poster. Um, and so posters are basically, instead of presenting a 15-minute paper, you actually design uh, a poster, um, uh, Extra glossy is always uh, highly recommended so that the, uh, the the conference venue lights can uh, can blind the person who is uh, trying to read your poster. Um, yeah. Ken and I are legendarily good at both graphic design identifying and identifying color, which means that the the one time I think we've done a poster together, yeah, it um, it uh, the the person reading it came up and said, "Hmm, shiny." <laughs> so he wasn't wrong. So colorblindness almost got me some in trouble uh, uh, coming back to Canada. Uh, so when you go through customs in the Calgary airport, you pass through and you tell them what you're claiming and everything. Uh, and the customs agent agent directs you to follow the purple line. Oh, and, no. <laughs> and there were two lines. And one of them, I wasn't sure if it was purple. So there, I think there's a blue line and a purple line. And I had started walking and I had to lean over and ask the gentleman who was uh, the uh, the Katza agent, just to confirm, this is the purple line, right? <laughs> to which he annoyedly said, "Yes, it is." <laughs> Good. And then you said, "Have you heard of the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast?" That slipped him a sticker. Was that the? <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. And um, so the the poster sessions are going on, and those the way you you do this, there there are one poster, and then people can wander around and actually interact with you so you stand by your poster for two hours or whatever it is yeah and you talk about it and talk yeah and and at the SA they do this really cool posters effort after dark thing where there's a um essentially a a bar surface um and so you can wander around and have a sip of on a drink and uh it's a bit more social and uh it's you know it's if you're a graduate student or even if you know you're research it's really great networking opportunity to participate in a poster session um because unlike a paper where you stand up you present you sit down um, and you might talk to people afterwards with a poster session, you get to sort of, you're constantly talking about what, what it is you worked on and, and get to meet people. And, uh, and so that's kind of fun. And so, so, so yeah, so back to the scale. So you're talking uh, thousands of attendees, hundreds of papers and posters, uh, multiple poster sessions. And uh, the, the SAs generally run from start on a Wednesday and they end on a Sunday. And so unlike some uh, conferences, the SAA likes to punish people by uh, uh, putting them in a Sunday morning session that begins at 8 a.m. Uh, uh, I actually uh, uh, had dinner with a woman, Jasmine, who is the curator for the um, uh, Army Corps of Engineers, uh, who was in the only curatorial session for the entire region, and they got stuck on the Sunday morning when everybody Oof. is sort of scrambling to get to the airport um, and uh, and feeling a bit sorry for themselves after enjoying socializing for four days yes um, so they, yeah um, and it, it is unfortunate because sometimes those sunday morning sessions are actually they, they tend to in my experience often be these fairly thoughtful sessions that but they're about a region or something you know so so maybe they've, they've got a little less big draw i've never really understood the how these things are assembled yeah yeah i'm not i'm not sure who who's the great 
chooser of, uh, of when I, I was lucky. Mine was on a Friday afternoon, which is sort of ideal. Yeah. For, golden uh, hour. For, yeah. Um, and so, so the day starts, uh, generally at eight o'clock. So SAA papers start as early as 8 a.m. Most sessions starts around nine, but uh, they run so the whole morning. Um, and so at any given time, um, like to give you uh, at any given time at the SAA, there are probably 30 uh, coincident sessions going on. So there are 30 rooms in the convention center or hotel where this is being held, where there are papers being presented at, at any given moment. And, and, um, you know, so it, the SAA requires a large venue. Um, so this was at the Oregon Convention Center. Um, and there were, I think, uh, well, probably about 30 rooms uh, uh, in each. There's sort of three sections. This one was great because the presentation rooms are all sort of in the same space. Oh, Sometimes you end up like on multiple floors and all over the place. Yeah. Um, but But to give the listener a sense of just how big this is, um, the, the program from this year was, is 316 pages, um, and they call sessions, um, sessions and symposiums. And so in total for the entire week, there were, uh, 252 symposiums, sessions, and poster sessions, individual. And so spread out over, um, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And each um, session might have nine papers, 12 papers. Six yeah, papers. Six, yeah, six to 10 papers probably in there. Um, so there's usually a morning um, that goes till about 11.30 or 12. Then they uh, break for lunch. Uh, so there's usually nothing going on at uh, noon till one. Uh, and then the afternoon sessions wrap up usually around between 4.30 and 5.30 p.m. Um, there's also excursions at a lot of conferences, larger conferences. So, you know, there were all sorts of um, you could sign up to for some free like walking tours or uh, some of them were like organized bus trips to go out to see an archaeological site or a historic site or something like that. Uh, and there's all sorts of like meetings for interest groups and um, and that sort of thing. And, and you know, so it's uh, there's also a fairly large the SAA kind of has this renowned exhibitors hall, which is a lot of fun. Um, and so you get to go in and talk with. Uh, book publishers and there's lots of lots of sales and discounts on on books that you can purchase um, a lot of the uh, companies that that do archaeological analytical work will have tables there so beta analytic and and myrrh and other places have have swag so you know i got my new uh antiquity uh photo scale i got some myrrh stickers which i gave to my kids uh they nice. have some gl glow in the dark stickers um the to uh, match can it's they, they exactly, irradiate the uh, stickers while they're yeah. the radio radiocarbon dating sample size guidelines from the Fantastic. from beta and these really nice really sharp uh wooden pens oh those look here. good yeah those look good yeah, um so. so uh yeah we the uh the book room is always a trip there uh, and it was nice the the listener who follows us on instagram will see a picture of ken in the book room holding our co-edited volume um, you can't tell the, the volume is actually so large. He threw out his back doing it. But, so you, you don't see him wearing the official APA and V back brace, you know, like the guys were at Home Depot. Yeah, but it's it's on under his sports coat um, in that picture. So, Ken, um, I guess uh, one thing I just want to touch on really, really briefly here, because I, I know we have a lot of student listeners who who maybe would be would be going to a conference for the first time and. What they may, what may happen is if they Google the SAA conference, they're going to hear about questions of 
some incidents that have happened at the SIA involving meeting safety. And so the SIA has done a lot of things with regard to meeting safety, which is also true for the other conferences. And I think just one of the things we should say before we kind of launch into why you should go for a conference is that if you're at one of these conferences, this is not, even though they're a lot of fun, it's not an excuse to behave badly, especially towards other people. And it's also not a, a space in which people, particularly vulnerable people like students are obligated, even though it's a social situation, they feel like social situations, even though people are often drinking or often going out uh, to dinner together or in these kind of, uh, you know, other situations that don't feel as formal as being, you know, at school yep. or at work, you're not obligated to be harassed, to be yelled at, to be abused in any sorts of way. And there's, so SAA, I understand now has substantial, um, they have an ombuds program. Is that right? Yeah. So they, they had a few, um, the ombud I think is, was it new this year? Was it there last year? I think it started last year. And so, so there was actually a team um, and there's a, a dedicated room for the entire weekend where um, uh, anybody who has uh, experienced uh, harassment or any kind of like, even just behavior that they think is inappropriate. Um, the, there's a group of individuals that are, are sort of independent uh, members uh, that the SCA recruits. I think they're probably parts of the uh, members of the executive and, and various other uh, participants. And so you can actually go speak to them, uh, file a complaint. They will do an investigation on site um, and respond in, in some capacity. Um, there, there was a quiet room as well. So a place where you can actually go and kind of, you know, like these are buzzy, uh, busy, um, and, and, you know, kind of like a little bit overwhelming sometimes the, the, um, and, and, you know, and people can, can get, feel pretty stressed out presenting a paper and, and it can be a little bit overwhelming. So there's a space for people to go, um, kind of unwind a little bit. Um, and, uh, there was an app this year for the conference, which actually had um, a reporting function in it where you could, if you don't feel comfortable going to see somebody in person, you could report um, a, an incident. Um, and that and that includes both within the conference itself and at like sanctioned and non-sanctioned events coming from this conference. So, um, you know, there's a lot of social activity that goes along. Some of these things are formally organized by the conference itself. Some of them are organized by peers and colleagues. Um, and some of them just kind of happen organically where people, you know, you, you get talking to a group of people and you say, hey, you want to go grab a beer, go grab supper or something like that. And so, um, you know, uh, always feel comfortable. I mean, for the most part, I think that everybody is there to um, be collegial and have fun and, and sort of learn and, and engage. Uh, but, uh, but that hasn't always been the case, uh, certainly. So, so it's good yeah. that they have these sort of safety nets in place to help people. I think that's true. And, and it, I mean, in my experience, I have to say too, though, you know, I remember going to these meetings when I was a student, it is, it's completely overwhelming. I mean, it's still overwhelming, yeah. but one of the, the great things I think is that many of the, the Northeast archaeologists, actually some of whom we're going to hear from with the blurbs later in the program um, are just incredibly nice people too, you know, and I, I remember being a student and these people really like go out of their way to sort of welcome you in and, and you know, invite you out for, for dinner or whatever. And, and so, so you do get that thing, uh, you get that community building aspect of these yep. meetings. And so, so not to focus on the, the downsides, but just to emphasize that it's kind of a reminder to students that being at this doesn't mean you're obligated to, you know, you're not, you should not expect uh, misbehavior, particularly on the part of your more senior colleagues or any of your yep. colleagues. Yeah. So, 
I mentioned, so part of the reason I just mentioned that, you know, you go to these conferences and I always enjoy when you go to one of these things, you see all these other Northeast people. Sometimes you meet new people. I've made good friends at conferences. Um, why do you, why do you go to one of these, these things? Uh, so I think some of it is, is obviously that you want to share your research um, and you'd like to share it with a broader group of people than maybe you don't always talk about. I mean, it kind of depends. Sometimes you can be presenting on Northeast stuff and the only people in the audience <laughs> Are your are the people that know you and know your research, but uh, uh, so it's it's sharing um, it's it's sharing your research. It's kind of distributing it uh, more broadly. Um, it's networking with colleagues. Uh, it's networking with people that you might not know. Um, it's opportunities to meet people that uh, that you wouldn't meet in any other context and kind of learn um, and and participate yourself in learning. You know, going to I, I went to an interesting session put on by a, a friend of mine who I met at U of T. Uh, where he was, you know, there was all about uh, applications of of sort of AI and and machine learning. Um, in colleague in was that just just so we give him a shout out, uh, Giles Morrow. Giles Morrow, excellent. So, yep. so uh, he's who's, at who's Vanderbilt. That? Vanderbilt, yeah, okay, Vanderbilt, yep. yeah, and uh, uh, and doing some really interesting stuff where they're taking like uh, Moche pots and the iconography and and basically teaching computers how to identify patterning. So uh, the problem with doing that with Moche Pots, isn't it that it's not going to get through your not safe for work filter? <laughs> At least in, in my limited experience, the Moche Pots are are essentially pornography. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, the ones he he had on display were were uh, the benign ones that. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Nothing so, blurred out. Yeah. yeah. Um. And uh. And yeah. So you kind of you get to learn uh, new stuff, and and you also get to. Um, you know, I've, I've been at meetings and got to meet somebody who, you know, oh, I've read your stuff. And like, that's like fascinating. It's kind of exciting. You know, um, I met uh, 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 this year, Victor Thompson, who uh, had a yep. paper back in 2012 with uh, Thomas Moore that that I, you know, I've drawn theoretical inspiration from, right? And yes. so it was neat to actually meet him and realize, oh, it's like, you know, this isn't just some like high flute and academic. He's actually a very friendly guy who's having a conversation with another colleague of ours about going to a Peter Gabriel concert, like, like you know, like, so it's, it's like, you, you, you meet people and you realize like, um, uh, we're all, it, it, it kind of humanizes everybody, you know, you read, you read their stuff and then you can go and hang out and actually like have a coffee with them or have a beer with them or go to lunch with them. So um, the editor for our, our, our book, so Pierre De, De Rosier and I, who, you know, we have a good professional relationship. It was great to go out and have lunch with him at the conference um, and just kind of chat. So that's great. And so, and one other thing that um, we mentioned, we'll just keep shamelessly plugging our book here, but, um, but the, the book that Ken and I wrote, but also one of the goals of a, a number of sessions, probably not a majority of sessions, but of many sessions is actually to produce an edited volume around a particular topic or to produce a particular journal issue around a particular topic. Yeah. And, and, and the objective with a conference paper is it shouldn't be something that you just are going to throw out there and never revisit. Like the idea, I think an ideal conference paper is that you are shopping something um, that isn't quite completely hammered out it's maybe a concept or some research work that's sort of like in its infancy or or it's advanced enough that you kind of want to get a sense maybe some feedback from people about like you know what do you think about it basically um and that you know you put a lot of effort into writing these conference papers take the you know the next step and 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 uh um, turn it into a publication if you think it's viable so um so you know for in in the context of the research that i'm doing we did a conference paper last year and one this year which will 
be kind of smashed together and and uh, and a paper will come out of it, a, a peer review paper. That's great. Yeah. Um, and so Ken, I think what we're gonna what we're gonna do is um we we are not it's the middle of the day, so we're not looking at half finished bottles of Corvassier, but we have special clips <laughs> from the SAA <laughs> meeting. Yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, th- I assume that the, the clips which I have not heard yet, but you interviewed a series of our colleagues. Um, yes. when, uh, and I believe Corvassier may have been involved in at least some of them. Actually, it was mostly I uh, grabbed people who were in the middle of their day and uh, we we hung out in the exhibitors hall. They had this great table area at the end of the exhibitors hall. Oh, and, cool. uh, and I set up the mobile studio and uh and and we had some great chats uh, uh, with a with a number of individuals. So that's fantastic. And the, the mobile studio is in fact a tinfoil hat with a microphone in it. It's uh, it's a <laughs> so, so it's not. But the thing is, it's not the strangest fashion choice at the SAA meeting. I always find that everyone kind of dresses their region. And so when you're at the airport, you know, you you see someone in a cowboy hat and boots, and you get to play the you know, cattle auctioneer or archaeologist game. Um, <laughs> I, I had a woman yesterday who uh, I overheard uh, talking about a, a, a relatively famous archaeologist. And I was like, oh, are you guys coming back from the SAA? And uh, she goes, yeah. And she was like, I kind of thought when you came on the plane that you were an archaeologist because you have an Arcteryx jacket. <laughs> I was like, uh... <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's, that's right. I, it's moisture wicking on the inside and it's moisture repelling on the outside. That's the fashion choice we we have. <laughs> All right. So what what we're going to do then is Ken is going to Ken made a series of short interviews with people who presented at the SAA meetings. Um, and so you're going to get to hear a little bit of some of the the really the most recent hot off the press Northeast work. Um, we are really grateful to our colleagues who are willing to do this um, with us. And so we're we're really happy to feature little brief blurbs on their work on this podcast. And we will put their names in the show notes. Um, and we encourage you to check out some of the work that they've already had out and to keep an eye out for published versions of some of the stuff they're going to tell you about. Yeah, yeah. So they were um, uh, Trevor Lamb, who is a PhD student at the at Boston University, um, Tiziana Gallo, who is a postdoc um, at uh, the Royal Ontario Museum uh, and, and fellow University of uh, Toronto. She's an alumnist. I'm, I'm technically still a student. Uh, Patrick Jollicoeur, who is a postdoc at University of Toronto. Uh, and Chris Wolf, who is the um, is a professor at University at Albany, but also the editor of the Northeast Anthropology Journal. Um, and we talk a little bit about his research and a little bit about the journal as well. Well, I can't wait to hear it. And we thank you all for tuning in. And in the next fortnight, we will return to some of our regular programming. And we're looking forward to talking with you then. Yeah, we've held you in suspense for the transitional archaic. Yeah, what, what happened this, at 3000 BP? Yeah, what the listener doesn't know is since we don't know what happened, we're just going to keep having special episodes uh, and just run <laughs> this out for the rest of time. <laughs> so thanks for tuning in. And we will talk to you in a fortnight. Take Thank care, you. everyone. Coming live from uh, uh, the SAA day three, day two for Ken, uh, and I'm joined by Dr. Tiziana uh, Gallo, and uh, who is a postdoc at the Royal Ontario Museum uh, and works on Iroquoian uh, stone generally. 
brownstone, brownstone cells. When that? Yeah. When that? Okay. Yeah. But that's not what I'm talking but, about. But today. that's not what we're talking about today. So. Uh, Tiziana it presented a paper yesterday at the SAAs, which uh, with uh, Craig Sapola. And uh, so, what was that about? Uh, it was about challenging typologies. So we we looked at um, a collection of uh, bird stones that are in antiquarian collections at the Royal Ontario Museum. Okay, cool. And um, tried to to better understand how we could kind of deconstruct their morphological and material features to um, to better understand how they vary. Okay. Because there are these like three very specific typological categories for like birdstones. Pop-eyed pop birdstone. Yeah, there's one. like the earlier birdstones are associated or are attributed to glacial cave. Oh, okay, cool. And there, these are the elongated eyeless birdstones. Uh, then you have the pop-eyed birdstones, which are which are considered to be uh, meadowwood, and then you have the Adena Middlesex uh, Hopewell birdstones that are these bust type shapes. Are they the ones that are like the platform style? They're more like bodiless, okay. kind of. They they have a rounder base, and sometimes have these projecting eyes. Okay. Uh, so what we saw in the collection was that if we if we look at different eye shapes and shapes of faces and the presence or absence of feet, we see like 43 different combinations. Oh, wow. So, so it's, it's instead of, it yeah, instead of lumping, you're splitting and seeing yes. that there's like way more variability than we, yeah. than we give it credit for. Yeah. Okay, cool. And so is it, it's uh, stylistic, but is it also material uh, differences yes. as well? Yeah. So looking at how uh, the material properties of the, the different stones of which are made, might have impacted how these shapes emerged. Okay. Uh, so cool. it, it's, yeah, it challenges these really rigid typologies and helps to, helps to think of these objects as uh, more widely distributed in time. Okay. And culturally. Too. Very, very cool. So what's, uh, what's on the go for uh, the Friday night at the SAAs? You got a restaurant choice? Oh, Or a, good a suggestion? <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to go see the Portland Trailblazers, the basketball team. Pierre De Pierre DeRosier, I guess, is going to the, the NBA game tonight. So, all right. Well, thank you very much, Tiziana, and uh, thank you for joining us on the podcast. And and I'd like to say, Tiziana is was already a listener and had already found a sticker by the time I found her. So, talk to you soon, <laughs> listener. A little bit louder. Audio check. There we go. Yeah, that's a good volume. Okay. okay. And we're back at the uh, day three of the uh, Society for American Archaeology annual meeting in Portland, Oregon. Uh, day two for Ken uh, because of my flight delays. And I am joined by a PhD candidate or PhD student? Soon to be candidate, Soon currently be, a student. <laughs> currently a student, uh, Trevor Lamb, uh, alumnus at the University of New Brunswick and a former student of co-host Dr. Gabe Reinick. Uh, and Trevor, what brings you to Portland? Yeah, so the other, um, the other Portlands, yes. So I was here to present a poster. Um, this is kind of my first failed dissertation project. <laughs> um, so my current dissertation project is looking at the importance of tubers um, and kind of root foods in general um, in Alaska. So, you know, trying to see how people were incorporating root foods into their diet and storing these in surplus um, by using starch analysis, um, 
and parenchyma analysis, which is a fancy word for root tissue. Um, but today I was presenting a poster, actually yesterday, on phytoliths, which was my first kind of foray into trying to track um, plants in the past. Yeah. What I actually found is that um, the phytoliths are a very bad indicator of plant use because I was able to find some phytoliths in burnt residues adhered to pottery shirts. Um, but what I found is that they're not very diagnostic at all. Basically, what I was finding is like elongate entire phytoliths, which are produced by basically all types of herbaceous plants, um, but unfortunately not produced by any of the plants that are used uh, to flavor food by eluting pigs. Um, so kind of negative evidence, but it pushed me toward my current project looking at sturgeons. Very exciting. Very exciting. A good, uh, I think they call that the pivot. Yes, the pivot. The pivot. Mm -hmm. uh, the <laughs> academic pivot. Okay, so uh, that sounds fascinating. I'm sorry I missed the poster. I uh, I was not uh, I was not here yesterday, unfortunately. Um, now, uh, what's uh, what's the cool jams in Portland? Are you taking taking in the Portland Trailblazers game tonight, or are you going out for dinner, or what's the? Yeah, I mean, I'm probably gonna go out to dinner with some BU people. Something too exciting. Okay. Um, yeah, Portland Trailblazers. I haven't even heard of that yet, so it sounds pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah. I, I hadn't thought about it until a, <laughs> uh, a friend of mine mentioned that, like, their stadium is, like, kitty corner okay. where we are right now. Yeah, so there's an NBA game on tonight, uh, very, very, very close by, <laughs> interacting with a bunch of archaeologists. Uh, well, thank you, Trevor, for coming thank on you. the show, and uh, thank you for being uh, an existing listener. Yep. And uh, uh, I'm going to give you receive my first edition sticker. Yeah, you got your first edition sticker. I'm going to give you a couple to take back to your BU colleague because okay. uh, we'd like to see the hits go up in uh, in in that area of Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. uh, although uh, I think Gabe listening to his own show is probably bumping it up uh, with uh, the proximity of Manch to uh, to Boston. So you know, I heard in a previous episode there was like a nice coffee incentive too, right? Uh, yeah, could be could be uh, or a float down the Old Man River or uh, or whatever uh, mm -hmm. whatever prize pack you're. you're thinking okay it. sounds good yeah all right thank you very much yeah thanks okay we are back with the new brunswick archaeology podcast live from the saas day two uh march 31 i guess it's actually day three for most people but uh, i didn't get in until very late last night so it's only uh, day two for me and i'm joined today with uh, dr patrick jellicoeur who is a postdoc at the university of toronto and uh, patrick what brings you to the saas this year so uh, I'm here to talk about uh, actually metal use in the Arctic uh, with a symposium that's looking at uh, metal use across North America, indigenous context. Lovely. And we, we were just having a great conversation about some field work that you just completed recently. Really fascinating stuff up in Labrador last summer. Yeah. So uh, in summer 2022, uh, me and a few grad students from U of T went up to a site called Skull Island One. So that's HCCGO4. And for the listener, this is not Skull Island from New Brunswick. Different site, yeah. different province. Different Skull Island, still no King Kong. <laughs> uh, but it's a, what looks to be a Dorset winter house site. And uh, it was originally tested back in the 80s. And they primarily found middle Dorset material, but all the radiocarbon dates uh, dated to the late Dorset period. So we were there to, to try and understand how old that site is. Is it a very late middle Dorset component or a very early late Dorset component? And also assess the uh, significance of contact between those people and the early Inuit um, a couple centuries later. Very cool. Very cool. Well, we appreciate you uh, coming on the show here and uh, and hope that you uh, enjoy the rest of your stay in Portland. Any, anything you're taking in? Uh, 
it's going a mile a minute. So I'm just taking in as much as I can. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you. And we'll talk to you soon, listeners. You might need to move a little bit Sibilance. closer. Sibilance. <laughs> okay. That's an old joke. It's not funny. Uh, all right. We're coming to you live again from the SAA's uh, afternoon of March 31st. Sessions are wrapping up for the day. And I have uh, grabbed Dr. Chris Wolf of University at Albany and also the uh, editor of the Northeast Anthropology Journal to chat about what brings you to the SAAs and uh, what, what are you working on? Um, I'm working on a couple of different things. We presented yesterday with my colleague, Don Hawley, on some recent research we did at the Investigator Island site in Notre Dame Bay off the coast of Newfoundland, the North Coast. It's a multi-component site. And it's new work there. I'm particularly interested in the archaic portion of it because there's no archaic occupations on the island. So it's one of the first ones that have been found recently. So Very cool. hopefully it has a lot of potential in the future. Does it like uh, like late archaic? Like the maritime um, archaic stuff? Well, we don't have good dates from it yet, though. It's a nicely <laughs> stratified site in the dates we have because there's the other components on top and it's very thin. Um, they came back more to gross water, Paleo-Inuit uh, okay, dates. So we don't have dates from the archaic yet, but we have probably two dozen woodworking tools, adzes, Very gouges, cool. and we have some slate bayonets, you know, all the hallmarks of maritime archaic. Really? So I, if I was to guess based on typology, it's probably, in terms of Newfoundland, um, somewhere in the middle, maybe okay. 5,000, somewhere in that range. Yeah, yeah. The bayonets be like, what, 5,500-ish or 40, yeah. 55 to 45 kind of in there, right? Yeah, and there, it's some really nice red slate polished bayonets and wow. things there. So it's, Crazy. it's got so much potential and we just barely scratched the surface. Exciting. So we presented on that yesterday, and then I have a session, um, which I think has the best session title ever created. Um, tomorrow is called From Hard Rock to Heavy Metal. Oh, nice. Indigenous Metal Use in North America. So Very exciting. We are presenting on uh, the adoption and use of iron by the Baothic people of Newfoundland. Fascinating and, stuff. And I'm kind of talking about more of the ideological aspects of what iron might have met, meant to them and their culture. Very cool. Very cool. And so what is the... Uh, I've been doing this... What is your recommendation for uh, for Portland evening on a Friday, the SAAs? Um, well, there's a brew pub on every other corner. <laughs> that would be one of my recommendations. Yeah, living here um, before, that was kind of just starting here like 20 years ago. And now there's there's so many good places to go. Um, I re definitely recommend getting to Powell's Bookstore. Yep. I mean, they don't pay me for this, but that's just the best bookstore in the world. And um but there's plenty of good places to see. Good, really good food. Um, we're going to have some good Indonesian food tonight. There's all kinds of uh, diverse uh, kinds of food and restaurants here. So, um, you want a specific recommendation for a, uh, a group of? Yeah, shout out, shout out one spot that you send they, people to. Are you hoping to get somebody to send samples to you? <laughs> I, I don't know. That's a, we, uh, we're always looking for uh, for some kind of uh, a sponsorship. So some yeah. some Portland Oregonian uh, Oregonian restaurant uh, being a sponsor would be something. Yeah. Well, we went to last night. We went to the Great Notion Brewery up on Alberta Street, and it was really good beer. And they have like a, a basically a, a taco truck that with a window between the brew pub that did really great tacos. Fantastic. So, I mean, you can't go wrong with beer and tacos. Can't go wrong with beer and tacos. Thank you very much, Chris, and uh, thank you, listener. Thanks.
And a short addendum to uh, my conversation with Chris uh, as the editor of Northeast Anthropology. Yeah, we're always looking for submissions. So if you work in the Northeast in any of the four fields of anthropology, really, even though archaeology is the focus seemingly by default these days, um, please think about submitting this. We'll get you turned around, peer reviewed quickly. So send us your work. And, uh, and if you're wondering about submitting a paper to a journal, you can tune into, I think it's episode five with, uh, with Bill Farley to learn, is your paper ready to be published? Thank you.